0: If you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, that will be our scripture reading, chapter 7 from 13 to the rest of the chapter. Focusing on the last verse of the chapter. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is a spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for what I will to do that I do not practice, but what I hate that I do Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. But I delight in the law of God according to to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. The confessional reading comes from the Harderberg Catechism, Lord's Day 23. Be focusing on the element, um, the characteristic of faith, Lord's Day 23. But how does it help you now that you believe all this? Uh, This means the previous Lord's days, which is the Apostles' Creed, that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants that credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say through faith alone you are righteous? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith. For only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness are my righteousness before God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. Beloved in the Lord, the Heidelberg in Lord's Day 23, begins with the question, how does it help? Uh, what does that mean that you believe all this? This refers, as I mentioned, previous Lord's Days, which covers the Apostles' Creed from Lord's Day 9 to Lord's Day 22. Apostles' Creed, which we recite or read together every evening service or afternoon service covers who God is. Triune God, three persons, one essence. So it can be summarized like this. I believe, start with the word, I believe in God the Father who did create the world. I believe in Jesus Christ who suffered and died for us. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I would say almost all Christians know or are supposed to know the Apostles' Creed. This is one of the first things that we memorize as we grow, grow up as Christians. Then the catechism asks a very practical question. You know your faith, you know Apostles' Creed. Very practical question. Then, now, how does that help you? How does it help you now that you believe all these articles of Christian faith? In other words, why does that matter that you not only recite, but you say you believe these articles? What does your faith mean? When you believe when you say when you believe in triune God, what does that mean to you? You see, you see, we may ask that question, but let me tell you what. Satan, he asks the same question. Satan asks the same question with a different intention. The catechism asks this question for your own benefit, but Satan asks the same question to Plant the seed of doubt or to destroy you. What good is there? That you believe. You believe that you cling to this triune God. Well, it's not like a Satan appears right in front of you and asks the question directly before your eyes, no. But Satan asks usually through people, even through people that you love. Think about Job and his wife. He was literally deprived of everything. His property was gone. His children were killed. He was the wealthiest man. But now he's in great poverty. What good is there that you still believe, Job? What, good, what benefit is there that you still cling you still trust this God? Curse God and die, Job's wife said in Job chapter two, verse nine. Why do we cling to God? Why, why, why do we believe? Why do we have a faith? Is your faith an instrument to keep you wealthy, keeping your children invincible from death and illnesses? Does your faith make you prosper? Is that an instrument for you to thrive economically, financially? If you look at Job, the answer is obviously no. So first, let us define what faith is. What does that mean, you say, that you believe? Because today, I tell you, the world has a different understanding of the word Believe. Especially when you watch some of the motivational speech or movies. They say, well, believe in yourself. You can do it. Just believe that things will get well. You can write really popular sermon by saying those things. Motivational. When they say believe, they usually mean, again, believe in yourself. They focus on you to make you feel better. For instance, they say, well, men, get, men can become women. Women can become men. You just have to believe. Almost sounds like there's a something that you can, if there's a something that you can accomplish, you want to accomplish, then you know it's not possible, but if you just believe you can achieve that kind of thing, your faith can accomplish that impossible. The world world wants to uh, give you confidence, make you have confidence in yourself by saying that faith is something that you, you do, you produce, you exercise. And some churches, sadly, they adopted this idea to make you feel good, however, that's not true. In their definition, faith is almost like a supernatural power. So, in some extreme cases, some in extreme uh, radical churches, they say if you're not if you're not rich, um, because you fail to believe in God, you you don't have enough faith. You got a car accident, you got a cancer, and then you want to be healed you want to recover yet you're not recovering well is because your faith is not strong enough have faith it's almost like a superpower whereas listen to this whereas the bible defines faith very differently it is very clear when Ephesians 2:8 says faith is a gift of god it's not something that i can produce it is given by God. That is very important to understand the reformed theology. Because God saved you when you are still dead in your trespasses, in the context of Ephesians 2. First, the beginning of faith is a self-denial. You deny that you have no power to achieve or accomplish that is the beginning of your faith. Faith is a trust. It's a passive, I would say. It is active, but it is very passive. It's like a little child on the top of a tree extending his hands to his father because he is not able to get off by himself. If he does, he doesn't have to extend his hands. He doesn't have to trust his father. He wants to. his father to catch him when he jumps, and he jumps because he trusts his father, not in himself. That is faith. So according to the scripture, faith is not about building up a confidence in myself. It's the opposite. It's to empty my pride and take away my, my arrogance. Faith is about having confidence in someone else to begin with you have a faith you trust someone else again because you have no confidence in yourself the same principle is applied when you pray when you pray you pray to God not to yourself if you are able to achieve something you don't have to pray and you don't have to ask for help so here's the theme and points you receive Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, holiness only by trusting Him alone. Only by faith. In other words, you become righteous in the eyes of God. You, you are declared righteous in the eyes of God because you're not righteous, but because Christ's righteousness is given to you. How? Only by faith alone. To give... Um, just a whole summary of justification, doctrine of justification. Justification is declaration that God, as a judge, declares you, sinners, righteous on the account of Christ's perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness. I usually explain like this. Christ said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Vine, branches, grafted into branch and all the good things that Christ has has to be transferred to you and then tube that grafting is called faith. Faith is an instrument by which we can gain, we can um, um, get from Christ his holiness uh, is <coughs> an Artic- uh, sorry, the Belgian confession article 22 23 speaks about that. Faith is an instrument. So let's begin with uh, what we can learn from the Apostle Paul from our passage. When we think of the Apostle Paul, we will think, first of all, he's a great man. He wrote many epistles, epistles in the, in the New Testament, and then he suffered so much for the gospel. He was a missionary. He went everywhere in uh, Asia Minor and Rome even. Eventually he did. And we cons- uh, the point is we consider him as one of the greatest apostles in the New Testament, humanly speaking. The reason why I say humanly speaking is because Apostle Paul disagrees with that in First Corinthians 15. He said he's the least of the apostles. Romans 7 we think Paul is such a great guy, high up there, something that we should, uh, we should imitate. But Paul confesses that he is very weak. He gives honest confession that he is a sinner. The least of the apostles. He did evil things. And he speaks about them more extensively in Second Corinthians. He uses this analogy. He is a weak vessel. A clay jar. A jars. He is one of the jars of clay. And God chose a weak, weak instrument so that we can glorify. We don't glorify ourselves, but we can glorify. We glorify God alone. That he may receive glory alone. So we read from a portion of Romans 7. And then let's go through once again in verse, from verse 15. He said something like this. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, I do. So what is this thing that I will to do? What I want to do? Godly things. The things that the law commands you to do. What I will to do, the good things, I do not practice, he said. But what I hate, sinful things, that I do. Verse 16, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it, that it is good, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I Practice. So you can sense that there's an inner conflict in himself and becomes very clear in verse 21. I find in the law that evil is present with me. Because of law, There's you realize how evil you are. The law reveals how sinful I am. Uh, the one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. So there's inward man who wants to do what God wants me to do, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So, what's going on? Well, as I said, there's a something going on, a war going on. There's there's a conflict in his inner, um, inner body. It sounds like us. Doesn't it? There are two members fighting against each other, conflicting each other. You can follow with me in verse 23. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. I'm I'm tempted to use this analogy. um, And every analogy has weaknesses. Let's say you are tempted... To sin. They say lie. You're tempted to lie. Did you clean your toys? Nope. But yes. Because mom promised me that I can have ice cream if I clean my toys. Although I didn't. You're tempted to lie. And then mom's approaching and all of a sudden you look at your right shoulder. There's an angel popping up. It's an imagery that people have seen from TV shows, and simultaneously and, and then the angel on your right shoulder tells you not to lie, and and simultaneously <coughs> there's an evil one popping up on your left shoulder telling you to lie. That's somewhat what's going on uh, in Romans seven. Except the reason I said every analogy has weaknesses, I said that is because this analogy implies that. I'm kind of neutral and I can choose the right or wrong. That's not what Paul is saying here. If you listen to what Paul says carefully, it seems like he says he always fails. Yes, there's a good side, a bad one, and he always ended up doing the bad things verse 23, he says, bringing me into captivity of the law of sin, which is in my members. I always fall into sin. Apostle Paul, even Apostle Paul. Think about, uh, think about the, the saints in the Old Testament. David falling into grievous sin. Peter, the one of the disciples. I do, not, I do not do what I'm supposed to do, good things, righteous things, but the things that I do not want to do, I end up doing it. So it's not like an angel, there's an angel and an on your shoulder, a devil on your right shoulder, telling you what to do, and you, you get to choose, of course. Yes, there's, a, there's a, some conflict in within your inner self, I try not to gossip about people. It's so tempting, but I know what I'm not, I'm not supposed to do that. But I certainly find myself doing it. It's not like I'm neutral, can choose good over evil. I know I have to listen to my parents and submit to the authority of God, the authority that God has placed upon me, but I don't. I don't like to. Although in the Old Testament, they used to stone disobedient children, but I find myself rebelling against my parents. It's just my nature. I try not to look at a woman with lustful eyes. I remember Christ said, if your eyes sin, take it out. It is better to enter the heaven with one eye than going into hell with both eyes. But sadly, I struggle, but I ended up Looking at a woman with lustful eyes, I just can't help myself. I think the word addiction is very appropriate here to describe our sinful tendency. I am addicted to something. I'm addicted to sin. I can't help. Does not mean I'm excused from all my wrongdoings. I mean, it means I am literally slave to sin. I am chained. That's the language. I mean, that's not the language the apostle Paul uses, but that, that's pretty much what he's saying here. I know Christ said, I ought, I ought to love my neighbor and Lord with all my strength. I I must love my wife and my husband, but my nature says otherwise. I am in trouble. There might be some people say, but wait a minute. But Look, I'm still a good person. Isn't it too cruel to to say I am chained to sin? But I still keep the law, just like the rich young ruler who came to Christ asking a question, Rabbi, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Christ asked, what is it written in the law? You shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, as your neighbor as yourself, honor your father and your mother, the rich young ruler, recited Deuteronomy six, five, plus the fifth commandment. All these things I kept from my youth. I did all these things externally from my youth. I never skipped church. From my youth, I never disappointed my parents. From my youth, I never have stolen anything. And Jesus said to the young man, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have a treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. So two things. What Jesus is saying is this. Yeah, maybe you did. Maybe you did keep the law outwardly. <coughs> maybe you did not violate any of these commandments when people are watching you. And maybe you did perfectly. But did, did you love your neighbor as yourself? If you do, if you do, because that's the summary of the law, he said so, Right? all these things I kept from my youth. Honor your father and your mother and love your neighbor as yourself. You said so, but if you love yourself as your neighbor, sell what you have, give it to the poor, to love them as yourself. The rich young ruler became sad and left. Second thing the Christ is pointing out is this. You must love the Lord with all your heart. It's not only about Showing outward signs. It's not about you not skipping a church. It's not about you giving offerings every Sunday. It's not about being obedient, using polite words, although they are very important. That's very important. But it's not only about showing your obedience outwardly, but it's also about your heart. Did you keep the law perfectly from your heart? not only not committing adultery, but not even looking at the woman with the lustful eyes, but did you not even have any lustful thinking in your head? So It's all also about your heart. The Apostle Paul knew that difficulty, and he knew that no one, including himself, you and I, No one can possibly keep the law perfectly. He not only failed to love the Lord with all his heart, but he failed to live a perfect, obedient life. So that's why he comes to the conclusion in verse 24. All wretched man that I am, I am messed up. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Can you feel the, his anguish here? His dilemma? Can you feel his helplessness? Frustration? It's the, it's the same frustration that every saint must go through. I do not do what the law demands us to do, but I do opposite. Oh, wretched man that I am, what am I going to do? I'm stuck in this body of death. It's interesting, Paul uses that language. Body of death. Body. You're born with. You're stuck with. Which you're not able to change. Body of death. Verse 13. I am carnal, sold under sin. Sold under sin. Slave to sin. There's old man and a new man. Old man is another language for the sinful nature, which I'm born with. New man is the new nature in the Lord Jesus Christ. Old man, the old sinful nature, must be demolished, destroyed. That is why Christ came in flesh, that he may destroy our sins, to crucify them, along with his body on the cross. Who will deliver me? From this body of death. Verse 25, such a masterful, beautiful language. Highlight of this chapter. Conclusion I thank God. Look at my body of death. I am hopeless, but I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our Lord, He's our master. I used to be a slave of sin. He freed me from this tough, suffocating, disgusting chain of sin, which enslaved me to sin again and again. Sorry to, for mentioning this. It might be um, a little bit disturbing, but uh, you know, though, it's like a human trafficking. Human trafficking. Sex slavery. In some parts of the world, and sadly, even in Canada... Uh, they kidnap girls to make them prostitute. Those evil kidnappers threatens to kill them. They drug them. When I was in China, there was a city called Kunming. It's uh, in the southwest part of China. And when I arrived at the city, I took the train and then arrived at the train station with uh, uh, my roommate. Um, And then both of us, we, we saw the scene and we became speechless, I saw little boys and girls whose hands were chopped off, and they were begging on the street. So what happened, I heard, is that they were kidnapped, Where they were orphans, there were many of them, and then these uh, disgusting people, kidnappers, they're the ones who chopped off their hands, or even a foot, first of all, so that they don't run away. And second, to make them handicapped intentionally, so that the tourist they can feel sympathetic toward them and give them some money. And the money that goes into the pocket, uh, they they all go into the pocket of ev- these evil people. And these kids have no place to go. They attempt to flee, and they get caught. They get even killed. And sometimes they are taught to steal money. One girl distracts a tourist, and another boy is pickpocketing. It's a it's a vicious cycle. Uh, And then, at a young age, they don't necessarily know what is wrong and what is right. But even if they know, they are stuck. For them, they have to do evil things, such as prostitution or stealing, pickpocketing. You know that's not right, but you have, you're stuck. You're a slave. So who can deliver these poor children from this disgusting chain of slavery? The Apostle Paul asking that spiritual question. We are all slaves of sin. Who can deliver me from this body of death? That as long as I am stuck, I'm in this body, I will Die and I will go to hell. It's a genuine genuine cry from the helpless slave. And in conclusion, I see myself, there's no help, but I thank God. That's a faith. You find that yourself is helpless, but you trust in someone who can help you. I thank God, meaning I trust God. I myself cannot break this chain, but Christ can. Just like the demon possessed men who were chained, cried out, living uh, near the tomb, the grave. Nobody could help him. But thanks to be God, thanks to God in the Lord Jesus Christ, by his sacrifice, by his atoning work i am free that's what the apostle paul is saying here going back to the story of the young rich ruler in matthew 19 jesus said if you want to be perfect go sell what you have and give it to the poor and you will have a treasure in heaven and come follow me go back sell your th- your stuff give it to the poor and similar, in a similar, um, the similar story is found in Luke chapter 10, 25. A certain lawyer asked the same question. What can I do? What shall I do to inherit the heaven? Eternal life. What is the written in the law? Christ asked the same question. What is your understanding of the law? Well, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Christ said, you have answered rightly. Do this you will live. So to one person, he said, sell your things as a proof of your love, your love in your neighbor as yourself. And then to this uh, lawyer, in Luke chapter 10, he said, do this and you will live. Keep the law perfectly and you will live. Right here, Christ is telling us how to obtain eternal life. You have to be perfectly righteous. Perfectly obedient. And as we know, you know, because the law tells us, we are not able to achieve that. No way. There's no way for us. But here's the good news. Christ did live perfect life. He did, so to speak, sell everything, as he said, he gave everything that he had. His body and blood. Life is in the blood. Bible says. And he gave to his neighbor. This powerful statement of the Apostle Paul gives us. Gives an important lesson when it comes to our faith. As I mentioned the faith is based upon the acknowledgement. That I am not able. At the same time. It's an acknowledgement that God is is able Lord's Day 23 perfectly summarizes perfect uh, uh, truth perfectly I always read this when I write a sermon on Lord's Day 23 this is really well written how are you righteous before God only by true faith in Jesus Christ which means only by trusting him By denying yourself, but depending on Jesus Christ totally. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all. Notice all the um, adjectives here. All God's commandment, not just a single or couple, not just some. All God's commandment of never having kept any of them and of still being inclined toward all all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace. Can you see that the author of the Catechism really wants to emphasize is by grace alone, period. All God's commandments I violated. Never kept any of them. Without a- any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of whom? Of whom? Christ. As if, although I didn't, al- although I sinned every time, but as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had, had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient, although I wasn't, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Because of Christ's credit, His righteousness is transferred to me. We use the technical term imputation, imputed to me. How does that happen? Through faith. And so the the question, previous question answer fifty nine, echoes Paul's exclamation: "I am righteous in Christ before God, and an heir to life." Everlasting. I find that our form of the Lord's Supper is summarized that truth very well, too. When you come to the Lord's Supper, it's not that I try to prove that I'm righteous by myself, no, it's the opposite. It's not to dis, um, discourage the contrite heart and humble believers. The first step is to acknowledge that I'm a sinner, and the second, you exalt Christ's merit his doings. And this gives us a great lesson when it comes to assurance of your salvation. How do you know that I am saved? Well, if you try to find your assurance by looking at your own good works, you will, I tell you the truth, you will never find assurance at all. Because you will never be satisfied. You will find yourself doing committing the same sin Again and again and again, as the apostle Paul said. But when you turn away your eyes from yourself, but pay attention to what Christ has done for you, then you find assurance, guarantee that by His works that you will enter the eternal life. That's why this uh, beautiful, this um, a doctrine of justification, a faith. In Jesus Christ, by His perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness, by His holiness, that you are declared righteous. It's such a beautiful uh, doctrine, if you think about it. It's not what my hands have done, but it's by Christ's works only. So I pray, this is my prayer, that, that you find comfort, then the assurance of salvation guaranteed to you, Not because you did something, but because, again, Christ shed his blood and lived a perfect life for you. Amen. Let us pray.